Welcome to the American Centrist Podcast. Welcome to Iowa. 2020 is off to a rousing start with two big things to talk about. The U.S. has eliminated, sorry, killed, nope, slain, or maybe it was assassinated, Soleimani. And a question for the kids at home, prior to this week's news, had you even heard the name Soleimani? Item number two, it's now socially okay to talk about the 2020 elections in public. As we lens into the great state of Iowa, who, come election season, becomes one of the most important states of the union. With me, of course, are co-host Jeff Link, Dave Kochel. Today, we're talking about their home turf, the temporary center of the political world between now and February 3rd. Gentlemen, hope you had a great holiday break. So you ready to get into this? Let's go, Lou. Let's go, Lou. Let's do it. All right. So start off with everyone knows or at least seems to accept that the Iowa caucus is the official start of the election. Jeff, can you kind of catch us up on the historical significance of this and and how this affects campaign outcomes in that is the is is what we've seen prior to the caucuses really relevant after the caucuses? Well, I, I mean, Iowa is unique in that it goes first. Um, we're the first caucus. New Hampshire's the first primary. It's been this way since 1976. And, uh, you know, that was a year where a governor from Georgia came out of nowhere and um, made a name for himself by traveling around the state of Iowa, literally staying in the homes of supporters. That was Jimmy Carter uh, back in 1976. And, you know, really the caucuses have just grown and um, become a bigger and bigger deal ever since. And, and you know, they've they probably hit their peak, at least on the Democratic side in 2008, when we had kind of the epic battle between Barack Obama and uh, Senator Hillary Clinton at that time. Um, Dave can probably talk about the biggest caucuses on the Republican side, but, you know, it's it's really grown in magnitude and um, reporters from around the country and around the world are flocking to Iowa right now for the final four weeks trying to get a sense of what's going on. And, you know, this is uh, a little bit unique, this cycle, because, you know, the latest poll showed that we had three candidates tied at 23. So it's anybody's ball game with just four weeks to go. So the caucus itself is, is a slightly different process than the primaries. And both parties sort of have their own methodologies of doing the caucus that most people might not be familiar with. Uh, Jeff, can you talk a little bit about the the Democrat process? And, and then Dave, can can we talk a little bit about how the Republicans go about it uh, and, and also what that's going to mean for this year? Yeah. So, so a caucus is very different than a primary. Uh, of course, for anyone that's ever voted in a primary, you know, you go to a polling place, they give you a ballot, you, you take your ballot privately, mark it, you stick it in a machine or, or you give it back to the election official, and then they take off. Um, and the process probably takes 10 minutes, uh, depending on how long it takes you to get checked in. Um, the, the caucus, and I won't go through all the details, but the biggest difference is it's all, all happens on a Monday night. They all start at 7 p.m. Um, and rather than voting in private and in secret, uh, you're asked to literally stand up for the candidate that you support, and you are put into a group within your caucus meeting. So they will say, um, 
in four weeks, they'll say, we want all the Biden people to be in the front right corner of this room. We want all the Buttigieg people to be in the front left corner, put the Sanders people in the in the middle, uh, put the Warren people in the back left, and, and they'll keep going as long as there are, are groups and you physically get up from your wherever you are in your chair and you go move and stand and, uh, you know, in front of your neighbors, uh, you declare who you were supporting. And it, that that public declaration is the biggest difference, I think, between the caucus process and, and what you do when you vote in a primary or general election. It sounds like this this process takes a, a lot longer than the average ten minutes of a of a voting booth. Does <laughs> does that have a uh, a measurable impact on how many people turn out to caucus? Right, I'm, I'm assuming this is open to everybody, just like voting would be. Well, it it is open to everybody, but in order to participate, you have to register as a Democrat uh, to participate in the Democratic caucus, and you can do that that night. But it is open to anyone as long as they're willing to register as a Democrat that night. So, but by being a much more involved process, do you think that lo- lessens the number of people who are going to go out and be it abs- part of it? It absolutely does. The fact that you have to show up on a Monday night at 7 p.m. lessens the uh, the participation. Uh, the fact that it can take three hours uh, to go through this process, uh, knock on wood, it'd be nice if my precinct finished in three hours. Um Yes, it it does. And sure, it would be great to have a more open process. But um, because New Hampshire has the first primary, we're not allowed to do anything that that makes New Hampshire think that we're trying to have a primary. So we have to have a caucus. And that's a series of meetings, uh, neighborhood meetings around the state of Iowa. And that's why our rules are so very different. Now, if if Iowa wanted to go after New Hampshire, this is just a theoretical, could they then have a primary? Yes. Okay. Okay. So uh, let's just change uh, uh, here a little bit over to Dave and, and the Republican process is a little bit different. You want to you wanna sort of help us understand that one? Yeah. Ours is much, much easier. It takes much less time <laughs> because we actually believe in privacy. Uh, we, our, our, ours is a secret ballot. Um, and it happens at the beginning of the caucus. They basically organize the caucus where you elect a, a, a chairperson, a secretary, a, or a, you know, also the officials of the caucus. Then they start running the caucus. And the, the, the first order of business is to go to, uh, to, to call for uh, any campaigns who want to get up and speak on behalf of a candidate. Uh, so most caucuses, if, if a campaign is well organized, you'll have uh, you know a volunteer or kind of a leader in the neighborhood who will stand up and speak on behalf of the campaign. Once you get through all of that, then uh, they pass out basically a blank piece of paper. They don't even have a, a, a pre-filled ballot with names on it uh, in the Republican caucus. You write down who you're for. Uh, you fold it up. It pass it to the end of the uh, to the end of the aisle. It goes forward. They tabulate it. They report it out. Then what happens is in the Republican caucuses, about 80% of the people leave. So we're done in about 30 minutes in most cases, unless you got a ton of candidates and a lot of speeches. Um, but, uh, you know, no, nobody wants to stick around for the debate on, you know, raw milk and whatnot that the often the Ron people will Ron Paul people will bring uh, to the caucus and in all of this sort of esoteric platform plank stuff that gets discussed in the election of, uh, you know, people going on to convention, although that's been more important in, in, in the past few cycles, when you do have a really competitive caucus, people 
tend to stick around uh, now that we have uh, sort of binding uh, delegate rules. Uh, people will stick around after that initial ballot and uh, run for delegate to the county and district convention. And then, you know, so people are elected to kind of move forward and oftentimes, uh, you know, in a real close election. And when you have maybe the prospect of of a campaign going all the way into June and to the national conventions in July and August, uh, you know, it really matters to stick around, stay engaged and fight for those delegate spots. So uh, it's kind of a, an, an interesting process on the Republican side, but nothing like what the Democrats have. What I love about the Democratic process, and I'm actually going to be attending, I think, a Democratic caucus in Iowa late later in the evening, just to kind of watch it play out. Uh, you know, if you don't have 15% uh, in the initial kind of formation, uh, then you're for your candidate, then you're basically dispersed to go join one of the other campaigns. So there's uh, you know, a huge emphasis on who second and third and fourth choices are. Uh, so these caucuses basically kind of get you kind of sift through uh, on the Democratic side to 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 try and see you know if 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 you show up and you were a Cory Booker voter and you're at you know you have six percent of attendees at the caucus for Cory Booker, they're all going to have to go somewhere else. Now they can go to uncommitted. I think that's right, Jeff. But yep. uh, what happens in most cases is then they they default to their second choice among the candidates who had 15% or more in the first go round. So uh, there's, it's a, it's three dimensional chess on the democratic side. And I think that it's one of the reasons why the Democrats invest so much more in field operations for the caucuses than Republicans do. And the Republican side is just basically identify your supporters, turn them out, they vote for you, then they're done. So the, the uh, Democrat side is almost uh, more of a way of eliminating the what some people might consider a wasted vote, right? So in a, in a primary, when you're voting for that that three percent candidate who you're really connected to, that's just not going to win. A lot of people might consider that a wasted vote. It, Jeff, is this a way of eliminating the possibility of the wasted vote? Or well, I mean, look this this plays out. This fifteen percent threshold, Dave is right. That that's that's how it works. If if there are a hundred people at your caucus, you have to have at least fifteen people uh, supporting one candidate in order to elect a delegate from that precinct. Um, if if you are voting, let's say in Pennsylvania, uh, you have to have at least fifteen percent of the voters in that congressional district in order to award a, a, de a delegate, just just like you would in an Iowa caucus. So this rule applies. It's a it's a DNC rule. Right. But it seems like it, if we're just voting, it's not like my the the three percent then get moved on to help somebody else. Right. Where, where it seems like in a caucus, those those three percent do get moved on to help somebody else. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So the second just, choice actually matters. Well, it matters hugely. And just to put a little um, color on this. Uh, where I caucus is in Des Moines. Uh, we caucus at Lincoln High School. And in 2016, I showed up at, at the cafeteria in Lincoln High School. And there were about 570 people at my caucus. The first job of the caucus, in order to do the 15% math that Dave pointed out, uh, you have to know how many people are in the room. Because once you know how many people are in the room, then you can multiply by 15% and say, this is how many people that you need in order to form a group. Well, do you know how difficult it is to count 570 people in a high school cafeteria? 
we we tried for 20 minutes by raising hands and by counting off and by doing a variety of of um, methods. And finally, somebody got the bright idea to send all of us out into the hallway. And they had the temporary chair of our caucus, one person from the Hillary campaign, one person from the uh, Sanders campaign, and one person from the O'Malley campaign stand at the door. And they counted us all as we came back in. This process took 40 minutes. <laughs> and that was the first item on the agenda was to count the number of people in the room. So then you divide up into the different corners of the room. And let's say in a room of 570, my my uh, O'Malley group only had 30. And I'm just making this up. Um, those 30 can't stay together because they're not 15% of the room. Well, he, imagine this. Now you've got 540 people that are trying to convince those 30 to join their group. So how much time do they get to 15 let's say minutes? They have 15 minutes. Okay. 15 minutes. So, and so what, you know, literally people go over and say, come join our group. Here's why we think our candidates the strongest, or they might say, come join our group. We'll make you a delegate to the County convention. Uh, come, come join our, you know, there's a whole variety of arguments that can be made, like how to do this. And sometimes they say, you know what, I don't want to join Sanders and I don't want to join, uh, uh, Hillary. I'm going to stay uncommitted. And if 15% of the caucus decides that they want to stay uncommitted, they can elect a delegate to the County convention as uncommitted. But leave it so, to the big government Democrats to create all kinds of caucus bureaucracy. You know, just uh, when you I, think you're going to try and explain <laughs> something on a podcast, Dave, like, just has to. Hey, hey, Jeff, I have bring a real, the needle out. I, I have a question for you. If if uh, I'm in a caucus and 10 percent of the of the of the caucus goers are for Amy Klobuchar and 10% are for Cory Booker. So neither one of them meets the 15% threshold. Yep. Can they join together for one of the two candidates or do they have to join one of the candidates that was no, already no, no. at 15% in the first time? They can join together. They can absolutely join together. What you cannot do, and this is a new rule this year, is if you're in a group that already has 15%, so let's say you're in the Biden group and your Biden group has 15%. In you the old days, you can't leave the group. You cannot leave anymore. In the old days, you could leave. Now, that's where it got really interesting because then you could say, okay, we have 10 extra people. We're not going to get a, an extra delegate. We've got 10 people. We're going to give these people to Klobuchar so she gets a delegate so that Cory Booker doesn't. So this this is what happened in 2008, correct? With uh, Obama, Edwards, and Hillary all kind of right at the top, and there was a lot of uh, sort of horse trading in each caucus to try and uh, I don't know maybe two of the campaigns were kind of conspiring against one of the campaigns. Is, is that is is that true? I mean, we kind of heard about that. Uh, yeah, all, all kinds time. of things happen. I think more often than not. What happens is you'll have somebody in a caucus who has been through this process a bunch of times, and they're going to figure out, and they, and by the way, these are precinct caucuses. So these are your neighbors. These are people that you've caucused with before if, if you've lived in the neighborhood for a while. And generally, it's the individual who says, oh, 
I'm for uh, I'm for John Edwards. I know how to keep Hillary from getting the extra delegate. This is what we're going to do. Very rarely is it dictated from the campaign and executed at the precinct level. It's just too hard. It's with, too hard with, to do, do with that these camp- But with these campaigns, like I heard today that Bernie Sanders has 250 staff on the ground in Iowa. I, I think Elizabeth Warren is well over 100. Aren't the bigger caucuses, aren't they staffed with a with a professional field staffer who has a pretty good idea of what the what this sort of overall strategic plan is for the state and for, for you know for the for the caucus yes they they will they okay. absolutely so, will but that that's not going to happen in all of iowa's what 1700 1700 precincts so even if you have 250 staffers there's still 1400 precincts that are uncovered so are those are those staffers sort of moving or helping move the public around like they they can they're allowed to be in the room. They're not allowed to caucus. Okay, uh, unless but can they convince people voters. to sort of go somewhere? To like, if somebody's not sure where they're going, can that staffer convince them? Can they can they campaign uh, they, on they site? Can, they can try, but uh, honestly, in my experience, having been at a few of these, um, your neighbors are more persuasive than some staff kid you've never seen before. So with the with the percentages the way they work. Looking at it right now with with uh, Pete, Bernie, and Joe going in at 20 or 22 percent, wherever they are, do any of the can- other candidates really matter? I, I know we're not supposed to say they don't matter, but do, do they right now? I mean, I, th- I think the next highest is, is Warren at 15, and then we drop into sevens. Well, it's going to matter in places because that's their statewide average. Um, but for instance, take Amy Klobuchar. I would I would just guess that she's going to do really well in northern Iowa because it's close to Minnesota. She's probably going to be above the 15% threshold in a lot of counties uh, north of Highway 20. And uh, that's going to change the whole dynamic. Maybe in, in southern Iowa, she, she doesn't do as well. I'm just guessing. I don't know. Um, but you know, it, it's it's going to be very different county by county. Um, there are going to be a handful of counties where Andrew Yang uh, does well. And that's going to be very different. Like uh, I was talking to somebody today that reminded me that uh, they caucused in Ames in 2008. And Hillary Clinton was not viable in their precinct in Ames. That's OK. She wasn't viable in the general election either. <laughs> Uh, Dave, you should just have a nice cup of tea or do something to <laughs> take, the, take the edge off. Hey, I'm I mean, Yang Gang all day long, baby. This is going to be fun. I, yeah. I, I would say that I would say that the opportunity here, uh, because of the size of the field, uh, and the fact that there will be, you know, six or eight candidates kind of in that, you know, under fifteen tier. Uh, you know, when you add them all up, they could, I mean, you know, they could have an impact on grabbing some delegates if they get together and say, okay, well, we're going to, you know, all get together and go for Amy or go for Corey or go for Yang or whatever to kind of prevent these delegates from just 
heading off to the front runners. Um, and I do think that the the dynamics on the ground will be pretty interesting. And I would I would just write that that it's the it's the neighbors in the neighborhood who will have the most persuasive impact, but with really good staff who are efficient and who understand kind of what's going on and come in with a game plan, you know, they can be working with uh, you know, their local precinct captain, the volunteers to, you know, to make the proper case and to sort of build the proper coalitions and organize things. And I think what you'd see is the smarter campaigns having, uh, you know, an advantage in being able to, you know, to bump up a couple of uh, points in each caucus if they're doing the right things. It, it may not really matter in the end because there really are four, I think, leading candidates here that look like uh, they're going to, you know, there's at least four tickets out of Iowa this year as, as opposed to the to the traditional three, but um, but then you do have you know Klobuchar, Booker, Yang could all have uh, an impact that's that's much greater than their you know si- sort of single digit standing in the polls. So let's shift our, our Iowa focus just a little bit to uh, who's not in Iowa this year and and whether or not that still makes makes them a viable candidate. So so Bloomberg's not there. Uh, yeah, I guess I wonder if he's a viable candidate whether he's there or not. Uh, and and who else is is not in Iowa for this? Well, uh, Bl- Bloomberg is the big one, and um, you know, the, <laughs> Rudy Giuliani tried a strategy where he was going to skip the early states, the early four states, and go to Florida. And his whole campaign was Florida, Florida, Florida. Um, that was R- a Rudy failed strategy. What's that? Rudy ran. Rudy ran for president (laughs) before he became a counselor to Dave's favorite president. Oh my God. uh, Oh my God. I didn't start this. I I remember when we were going to do this straight, but if you want to go down this road, we can't do, we can't do it straight. Jeff, we got to throw some knuckles. Uh, I remember when Rudy showed up the first time in Iowa to campaign, he, he came rolling in with like, eight New York City like retired cops and like four black SUVs and it was like you know you just knew it was never going to fly in Iowa of course you know president trump came in with his own helicopter and you know the same kind of thing so maybe times have changed between 2008 and 2016 but um yeah that strategy uh, the, it's interesting uh, as i sit here now i'm in colorado and uh, I, I have seen so many bloomberg ads it's almost like he's running for congress in my congressional district here it's it's insane how much money he's spending and the you know the real thing here about the caucuses and this, this is this is kind of the importance of of the four carve out states Iowa New Hampshire Nevada and South Carolina is is you know all the advertising that you can do nationwide, and he could spend a quarter of a billion dollars or more than that, uh, even before the first votes are cast in the caucuses on February 3rd, uh, really the entire conversation gets captured by the sort of horse race significance of each of those first four states. And and th- this is the the you know, the failure of the Rudy strategy in 2008, he was the most famous person in, in the race, most likely. Uh, but, you know, he he was just completely drowned out of the conversation as the first four states were kind of playing out because, you know, the cable news coverage, which drives most of this and all the print reporting, and there'll be 3,000 or 4,000 reporters, uh, you know, credentialed into Iowa on caucus night. Same thing in New Hampshire and probably less than that in Nevada. But, you know, almost every 
ounce of uh, all of the mind share, all of the conversation will be based on who's up, who's down, who beat expectations, who failed to meet expectations. Uh, and it'll drive how much money they're able to raise online. Uh, it'll drive, you know, what what voters in the next state that are waiting uh, think about these candidates. It'll certainly uh, set up, you know, who gets attacked in the next debate. Uh, you know, this this stuff is is really important. And for Bloomberg to to sort of be completely out of that conversation, uh, I, I don't know how he does it. I mean, yes, running a whole bunch of TV ads has gotten him to, I think, equal with Amy Klobuchar nationally right now in the in the sort of national polls, which of course are meaningless. Um, but I, I just I don't know how you do this without participating in the first four states because you're talking about a month of really not being part of the conversation at all. Well is, he's is he's he gonna, skipping all four? Yeah. Uh, he is. He is. Okay. And he's he's gonna test this theory um, and I just saw there was a story today that um, he's buying a Super Bowl ad. Uh, he's going to spend $10 million. And they announced on one 60-second ad, uh, they're going to spend $10 million. And he said, this isn't going to be about me. It's going to be about Trump. That and sounds like a horrible idea. <laughs> uh, to spend $10 million. Well, I mean I, – I'm no political strategist, but shouldn't you be talking about what you can do, not how bad the other guy is? This is this is like, you know, the the war of I I'm not as bad as him. <laughs> no, I th I think it's slightly different, and and I agree with you on, as a general proposition. But the whole purpose of Bloomberg announcing that he's going to do a, a Super Bowl ad is basically to say to Donald Trump, uh, I got a lot more money than you do. I can do anything I want. I can do it anytime I want, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna flex a little muscle uh, here at the at the Super Bowl. Is is this country ready for another billionaire president who can flex muscle whenever he wants? Uh, <laughs> you know, the the American Berlusconi has not worked out so well for us. Well, look, I I, I think strategically it's not. A, I mean, when you got fifty billion dollars, what's ten million, right? It's like you find it in a couch. Um, <laughs> but but I I think it actually does him a little bit of good. Um, you know, getting goodwill among Democrats who just who just hate Trump so much that they want to. You know, they just can't wait for somebody to be banging on the president. And if uh, you know, if he's the one who's got ten million bucks to go put an ad on the Super Bowl that everybody will see, uh, maybe it buys him a little bit of goodwill with Democrats who 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 like the idea of taking the fight to Trump. But um, I think my my earlier point stands that it's just um, you know that's the day before the caucuses. And maybe it'll get talked about on you know February second, but then starting February third, all anybody's going to be talking about for the next four weeks is what happens in those carve out states. So let's let's take his strategy uh, off the table for a second. Is Bloomberg uh, a viable candidate, and does he bring anything to the table that the others don't? Jeff. Well. Uh... Yes, I think he's he's a viable candidate. Uh, he was mayor of New York City. Uh, he has a, a record as mayor of New York City, and I think he's he's more than happy to talk about it. In addition to his work as mayor, um, he has put tens of millions of dollars into issues that he believes in. He's uh, 
you know, been a real champion for sensible gun reform. Uh, he's, he's been a supporter of abortion rights. Um, you know, he's really changed the, the discussion and the debate on a bunch of these issues in a meaningful way over the last decade. And, um, you know, you, you have to take that seriously. Um, he is, he is building, uh, a campaign operation. He just hired 500 staff people in 30 states. Um, he's, he spent more than a hundred million dollars on television in five weeks. Um, this is, this is a huge force and here's where it comes into play. Uh, if we have four different winners in the first four contests, and we have uh, about two weeks between uh, Nevada and, and Super Tuesday, all the advertising that Dave's seeing in Colorado is going to have an impact uh, in, in seven weeks from now. And that impact could mean he's at 15 or 20% on Super Tuesday. And as Dave pointed out, if, if we have somebody who wins two or three of those contests, it's, there's no amount of money that's going to be able to compete with the, with the momentum you get from that news and from winning. Um, but if we have four different candidates that win four different contests and then you roll into Super Tuesday a couple weeks later, and all four of those candidates are underfunded because they never really got the momentum or the news that they were hoping for out of those early wins, then watch out for Bloomberg. So so you theorize that he's looking for a four-way tie, so to speak, coming out of the, the first four states. I think he's looking for a four-way tie or he's looking for uh, Senator Sanders or Senator Warren to be at the top of the pack and that he would become the alternative. So last uh, last Iowa question here before we move on. Uh, it it looks like we have our, our three front runners moving into this. Is there a surprise fourth, or is there a surprise of one of those three getting knocked out? Uh, Jeff, real quick, what's your what's your quick take on that? And then Dave. Uh, I think the, the candidate to watch is Senator Klobuchar. And uh, what I would watch for is to see if she can get into the top four, um, because if she does that, I think she really does damage to to one of the the four candidates at the top right now. Okay, Dave. I think there are four people holding a ticket out of Iowa right now. That would be uh, Biden, Buttigieg. Sanders and Warren. Warren seems to have fallen back a bit now. Uh, I think Jeff's right about Amy Klobuchar being could be could become the surprise of the caucuses. It will depend a lot who she finishes ahead of. If she finishes ahead of Biden, uh, that'll hurt him substantially. I think as a uh, sort of centrist candidate. Uh, if she finishes ahead of of Warren, who you know was the hot candidate for a while, uh, and 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 Warren ends up finishing fifth. Uh, in the caucuses, that will really cripple her going into New Hampshire. So I, I think it kind of matters the order of finish. If if Klobuchar gets the hot hand here, and she she has done much better in the last uh, few weeks, uh, it, it'll it'll really matter who she's able to eclipse. And if she if she gets either one of those candidates, it could be uh, it could spell real trouble for them going forward. Okay. So uh, I, I sort of lied. I'm going to ask one more Iowa question, uh, just out of my own curiosity. Most of the front runners are politicians, politicians, sort of status quo politicians, even the progressives. Uh, does the outlier, Andrew Yang, have a chance in any of the first four to jump up ahead 
if if we get a surge of younger voters who are just looking for something drastically different in the way that people with Trump were looking for something drastically different? Uh, I'll take that one first. I, I mean, I think that, you know, he is he sort of operates outside of the sort of traditional expectations game. Uh, but once the contests start happening, if he's finishing fifth and sixth and seventh in these contests, it'll go away pretty quickly. Uh, you know, that online army that he's got Yang gang and all the money that's been coming in, that'll, that'll, that'll roll up pretty quickly if he's, if he's not anywhere near the first tier. And I don't, I don't know that his, his support is going to be broad enough anywhere to really hit uh, you know, the delegate level. He's got extremely low delegate expectations, but I, I, I'm not sure that he can even really much exceed them. So I think his campaign will be on uh, life support in a, in about, uh, you know, middle of February, third week of February. It's going to be tough. I think the 15% threshold is a challenge. Um, but, you know, he's brought a bunch of new people into the system. Um, I, I think he's run a pretty brilliant campaign and, and he has a worldview, uh, that is dead on. Um, we're not ready for what's coming next with artificial intelligence. Uh, we're not ready for driverless vehicles in terms of the impact on our economy. And we have a tax scheme in this country that, um, is not built for internet businesses and, you know, no one else is talking about it. And, so I, you know, I hope I hope he keeps going, but um, you know, it's going to be tough. Okay, well, maybe he'll angle a cabinet position out of it all and see what happens. So uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, some hot button events in the Middle East. So for starters, uh, and and I want to get each of your take before we get into the conversation here. Was Soleimani eliminated, killed, slain, or assassinated? Jeff, which of those four? Uh, I think assassinated. Okay, Dave? Well, he's not breathing anymore. I'd say he's been killed. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's talk about what led up to this killing slash assassination. Uh, I'm going to stick with eliminated. Um, so <laughs> let's let's talk about what led up to this. Why did this happen? Did Trump go a field too far here, or is this is this uh, an appropriate response? Uh, let's start with Dave here. Uh, I think it was an appropriate response, uh, given the ratcheting up of of sort of hostilities uh, in the last few weeks over there. You've got the embassy issue. You had a contractor who was killed. It might have been. I, I mean, it's a pretty it's a pretty aggressive move. Uh, but you, you know, even even the most liberal Democrats can't can't tell you that he was uh, you, you know anything but a but a really bad guy. I, I think the question is, and we won't know this for a while. You know, did the Trump administration think this through? Uh, were they prepared for the fallout? You know, what is the you know what will be the fallout? What will be the response? Uh, you know, I was not I was not heartened by the uh, the 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 mistake letter that was sent to the Iraqis yesterday appears to have been sent to the Iraqis yesterday, uh, talking about a, a full troop withdrawal from Iraq. It, it made it look like, you know, the the Defense Department is the gang that can't shoot straight if, if that was, in fact, an unsigned letter was transmitted to the Iraqis. So, you know, I was pretty concerned by that. And it, it I think, you know, sort of gives me a, a lot of uh, uh, 
discomfort uh, do, going do forward. Do we think that, that letter was real? I, th- I mean, it, it appears to have been real. Uh, the de- Defense Department has basically said it was a draft. So obviously someone wrote it. It wasn't the Iraqis that wrote it or the Iranians. Uh, I, I mean, I don't, it just it looks like a total cluster from the get go. And, and it, you know, it, it ought to, uh, you know, make people very concerned that we actually have a, a, a proper strategy in place. And, and that's, but, you know, we, we won't really know this, uh, I think for a few more weeks until we sort of see how this plays out, you know, that maybe the Iranians, you know, don't have much of a response. And, and, and then again, it may be that their response is, you know, broad and across many platforms, cyber, uh, you know, proxy attacks on embassies. You know, who knows what will happen? I mean, it's very hard to predict what they're going to do. But there's no question he he was uh, he was a a viable target. He has been leading efforts against American interests, against American assets, and against our allies for decades. And uh, you know, it's it's a uh, good to have him off the field. Okay, so so Jeff, I, I I take it from your use of assassinated that you you don't think it was an appropriate response, and you correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, if it was not an appropriate response, what is an appropriate response to what happened at the U.S. embassy? Well, I don't know what we were responding to. I mean, Dave said it's a response. Uh, I don't know what it's a response to. I mean, if the standard is he was a bad guy and should be taken off the field. Um, should we list the other bad guys? That no, we no, should... Jeff. Th- Jeff, it is a response. There, there was uh, Hezbollah activity against uh, our assets in Iraq. A you know contractor was killed. Uh, you know he's responsible for you know all of the uh, you know IEDs that were in Iraq during the war. There, there. You know he's organizing the protest against our embassy. He was in town to meet with a a, a an Iraqi a known terrorist. Uh, and basically, his full-time job for the last twenty-plus years has been to, you know, to attack American interests and 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 interests of the West. And so, yeah, there there are things recently that he's been doing, but also accumulated things for you know for for many many years in the region. And it's it, it's not as though he was just uh, you know out for a walk in the park. He's he's there meeting with a terrorist, uh, plotting against America. That's what he was doing. What what if he what if he plotted to interfere with our next election? That would be a bad thing. Oh, just like, so uh, should just like should Russia should Putin be on this list? Uh, well, no, Putin should not be on a. Why, on a, why, on a list. why not? Well, because Putin's not arriving in theater to meet with uh, with uh, uh, you know a commander of Hezbollah uh, in preparation for carrying out what is likely to have been uh, you know violent attacks against American interests. How do you know that? Well, I mean, I'll have to just uh, trust the uh, the intelligence apparatus and the Defense Department to be able to tell us what uh, what Putin's activities are at any given point, and I would trust. But, but your your president doesn't trust the intelligence apparatus or the well, Defense Department. Well, he certainly did in this case because they made the recommendation and he approved it, and it was carried out. And if if we look at what happened at the at the embassy, the the term protest is getting thrown around a lot. Uh, are are we collectively agreeing with the word protest, uh, or or was it something other than a protest? Was it was it an attack of sorts on the embassy? 
Well, it was an attack of sorts because you had, uh, you know, people, I think a couple of outbuildings were destroyed. Uh, there were people scaling the walls. It was certainly more than, uh, you know, peaceful sign waivers. It was uh, basically elements of a an organization that has carried out violent attacks around uh, around the country of Iraq. And so, uh, I mean, I think that's part of, of, of what was raising all of the, uh, you know, red flags uh, for the Pentagon and for the intelligence community. It, I mean, it was a, and, and, and if, if I'm incorrect here, correct me, but it was uh, a lot of the quote protesters were an Iranian backed militia unit. Is that? Yeah, that, that's, that's correct. It's a, okay. it's a, uh, an Iraqi branch of Hezbollah. Yep. Which is, I, th I think there's some confusion when, when a lot of people hear what's going on here, that, that there's an Iranian mi militia in Iraq. Right. Right. So, well, so I, mean, I think I mean, that throws I, people I, I, a little bit when you're, when you're trying to figure out what's happening here. There's a lot of factions. Like a lot of countries in the Middle East there, you know, it, Iraq is a very factionalized country. You have, uh, you have, uh, Religious groups in Iraq that uh, that are much more uh, aligned with Iranian uh, ideological and strategic interests, and you have groups in Iraq that are more aligned with, uh, you know, Saudi interests or Western interests, European. So, uh, you know, th it's a, this is a very balkanized country, just like Syria, just like, uh, you know, I mean, the, the entire Middle East is a is a mess. Um, and so this, like, for instance, the, the Iraqi parliament voted unanimously to, uh, to uh, uh, request the removal of American troops, which is one of the things that potentially led to the drafting of this letter. However, uh, of the people, uh, the, many people in the Iraqi parliament, specifically the Kurds, but also uh, you know, Sunni Iraqis uh, did not even show up for that vote. They protested that vote. So, you know, there's there's no universality here in Iraq, but certainly Iran has been gaining uh, influence in Iraq and in other countries. And this was part of Soleimani's job, essentially, over over many years, was to sort of uh, you know make alliance with uh, with groups in in countries. Uh, where they wanted to hold a sphere of influence and then, uh, you know, causing them to act, uh, you know, out in, uh, you know, violent ways and, and, and also in political ways. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a mess over there. This look, I mean, I, I don't think if this decision came across my desk, I'll never be president or even run for, you know, state representative. But uh, if this came across my desk, I don't know that I would have taken this action. Uh, that said, um, it you know he's he is a a particular a uniquely bad actor, uh, not only in the region but on the world stage. So just just to to sort of and and not not in a sense of trying to get agreement between the three of us here, uh, but but to to help people understand all the things that led up to this, you talk about the U.S. contractor that was killed. Uh, am I correct that that happened during? Uh, Iranian militia and Iraqi soldiers at protests by Iraqi citizens. Actually, that happened before the protests at the embassy. I believe it was about yeah, it was it was two the and a half or three weeks ago. Yeah, the protests before the one because I'm not. I guess I'm not calling the protest at the embassy a protest. That, that to okay. me, but there were protests by uh, Iraqis 
against their own government where the the Iraqi forces and the Iranian forces came in hard. There were a lot of people killed in that, correct? And the American contractor was one of them. Am, am I correct in that? Uh, I mean, that's basically it. Although okay. it wasn't Iraqi for forces, it was it it was members of this KH group, this 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 Iraqi based Hezbollah Hezbollah affiliated group that Iran was sponsoring, essentially. Who who were some of the Iraq, some of Soleimani's? Uh, is it Quds yeah. Force? Is that correct? Weren't they part of that group that went in to break up those protesters? I think 168 were killed. Yes. Okay. So. So we have that as 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 lead up to to this the strike on Soleimani. We have the the ships getting seized in Hormuz as as lead up to the to this, and we have the U.S. drone getting shot down two three months ago. Am I, am I close? Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess my question for for Jeff and 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 I'd rather not you know shift it over to, to Russia, but but deal with the events that occurred in the Middle East, which is where we're in a hot conflict. Looking at those events, uh, is it is it the U.S. that's ratcheting things up, or is the U.S. responding to to Iran ratcheting things up? Well, I, I think uh, we have we have taken ratcheting up to a new level. Um, you know, I, I I mistakenly have said in the past that that Trump was a great divider. Turns out he's a great unifier, and he has somehow figured out how to unify the Iranians and the Iraqis against the United States. Uh, they've they've hated each other for decades. Um, they have been at war for on and off for decades, uh, and they are uniformly opposed uh, to to this president and to what we've done and. Um, you know, he was hell bent on getting out of the uh, Iranian nuclear deal, largely because Obama did it. Um, we were in a much different posture in our uh, policy as a country with Iran uh, four years ago than where we are today. Uh, we have instability. We have protests against the United States. We have people marching in the streets saying death to America. Um, well, but they, yes, they've been we, doing that over there for quite a long time. Well, they did it 40 years ago, which is which is what Trump's whole world perspective is. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go in here and I'm going to pick a fight because I have some feelings about what happened in the 70s. And uh, I didn't like the way the United States handled the Iran hostage crisis, so I'm going to I'm going to fix this myself. So I, I have two questions uh, for you. One is the the nuclear deal itself. Regardless of of who executed it, w- was the entirety of it a good decision on the part of the United States to 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 give them the billions and billions of dollars and and to allow a certain amount of material to be made, or was it? a not so good idea that we just kind of ended up in. Well, he, let me tell you what the big difference is between that policy and where we are today. Uh, no, no, At, just answer just was it a good or a bad policy? Then you can tell me. Better policy than where we are today. Okay. And here's why. That policy brought in other countries in Europe. This was a unified approach to dealing with this problem. The problem that Trump has is that he cannot have partners in anything. 
when we take on China in a trade war, do we do it with Canada and Brazil? Nope. We go it alone. And guess who wins the trade war between the United States and China? Brazil and Canada. With Iran, he didn't like the deal that Obama cut, so he's going to go it alone. He's going to push aside all of our allies. He's going to ignore Europe, and he's going to try and do this on his own. There was a story yesterday that uh, Netanyahu, his dear friend in Israel, went to the went to the parliament and said, "Hey, look, this was all the United States. We didn't have anything to do with this. We're not talking about it." Like, can you imagine Iran's enemy on earth is uh, Israel's enemy on earth is Iran, and Netanyahu doesn't want to touch this with a ten foot pole? Do you know what a terrible position the United States is in because of this decision? It's crazy. So my next question is, when you had said that the President Trump had managed to to bring the the Iranians and the Iraqis together, right? Yeah. Is that all Iraqis or or do you think there's is, – is Iraq divided? I don't think you could get all Iraqis to agree on the color of the sky. Okay. I think Iraq right. is, is far more divided than Jeff is is representing here. I, I do I do agree that I just uh, said they couldn't agree on on the color of the sky. I well, don't know. No, but you, 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 well, you I, I guess my question, what I'm trying to drive at is is Iran and Iraq really together? I think on the question of this particular action, Jeff's right. Uh, but I think overall, no, it's it's it is not uh, aligning Iraq and Iran against our interests. I think Iraq is in a in a very difficult situation, and it's a incredibly factionalized country, and it's going to remain that way. Uh, and and I do think that this has introduced a an element of volatility and just unpredictability in, in terms of what their response might be. Um, and we're going to go through a I think a significant period here of continued saber rattling but there's it's not just trump and his twitter account there's also an entire foreign policy establishment and a defense establishment in this country that are you know talking to our allies that are working with our allies and trying to kind of you know write this uh and and not have it just be a um sort of a a twitter proxy war between uh you know between the uh ayatollah and and president trump and i like as you saw with the uh you know the the threat to to uh, go after cultural sites you know the 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 uh, secretary of defense has made it very clear that that the united states is not going to do anything that violates uh international law on going after those even though you know president trump likes to you know, p pursues all kinds of bluster on his Twitter account and in his gaggles outside of the uh, of the White House. You know, in front of the helicopter, it's 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 you know there it, there are there's more than one person uh, in this country that is driving this policy, and I, I'm I'm hopeful that um, you know we're working with our allies in a way that uh, that will bring this whole sort of period of uncertainty to a, a better place than it's at right now. So, following all of this, there's. Uh, I believe it's the Iranian ambassador to the UN cannot come into the US to address the UN. Is that is that good? Is that bad? Are we are we making things worse by by just not letting them come in and talk to the UN? Uh, it it I I uh, it looks like something that happened today. So there's there's probably more information than I have on it. But it looks like uh, President Trump 
revoked his his travel privileges. So yeah, I, I think I think that stuff is kind of a sideshow. He must have thought he was Mexican or Muslim. Well, he, he, oh, he, he may be he's Muslim. From Iran. Uh, here, here's uh, one, one last question in, in a lot of the conversation and articles that are going on with this. There's a term that keeps getting thrown around called Iran's proxies. Everybody's talking about Iran's proxies. And, and I, I get the sense that that's sort of cleaning up something in the same way that using the word protests in articles is cleaning up what was really an attack. Can either of you shed a little bit more light on what people are referring to when they keep saying Iran's proxies? Because it sounds to me like these are uh, non-governmental militia factions that we just want to call proxies. No, so- sometimes they are governmental, like in the case of Syria. Uh, uh, Soleimani has been the sort of de facto uh, uh, you know, commander of forces outside of Iran – like the, like these groups in Iraq, like in Syria, I believe he's had a hand in Yemen. He is, uh, you know, in Lebanon. Uh, you know, he he has been a major player in the region, organizing groups, both governmental and non-governmental, uh, to to sort of go after, uh, you know, infrastructure in these countries and political leadership in these countries where Iran seeks to have more influence. And so, um, the the Assuming we get through this period of time and and the sort of rhetoric dials back and and you know the responses don't sort of lead us into World War III or a much expanded conflict, we'll you know history will look back on on this and say that a, a you know a very destructive person with with all of the international contacts and with the strategic skill. Uh, and the sort of military uh, uh, ability to organize, you know, these proxies to go after our interests and our allies' interests, and and you know, more moderate uh, or, or or democratic institutions in the region. So uh, at the end of this, assuming we sort of get through this, you know, potentially very bad period, uh, you know, you've you've actually eliminated, as you as you put it, uh, Lou, a a, a really bad actor, a person who was a cancer in the region and who was never up to any good over the course of a couple of decades and who was responsible for the slaughter of thousands and thousands of Muslims and hundreds of Americans. Okay. Uh, so, so Dave, while you were talking, we, we all paused for a second here. Uh, I think everybody got some alerts on their, uh, on their news feeds uh, during this recording that uh, Ron just launched 10 missiles at uh, a U.S. air base uh, in Iraq. So I think that that affects the conversation we've we've been having. Uh, I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see uh, in real time how we can affect this conversation. So let, let's pick this back up, knowing that that uh, Iran has just responded. So, so yeah. Jeff, uh, I think this this leans into your your take on things a little bit. Um, where 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 do we go uh, in the next couple of days? Well, look, here, here's <laughs> this is a dangerous moment, um, and we have um, a person in the White House who's irrational, and this is a time where we need some cooler heads to get around him and convince him that there are uh, a variety of paths here and to put Twitter down and to figure out how to do this in a sensible, responsible way. Um, 
it's not a time for grandstanding. It's not a time to make partisan scores right now. I mean, he he lit a powder keg. Uh, this is the next step. We're far from the end of this. We're just at the beginning of it. Um, and I just really hope and pray he literally puts the Twitter down and starts listening to some of the people that have been doing this professionally for 20 or 30 years to figure out where we go from here. Dave, a couple of last thoughts here. Yeah, no, I think Jeff and I come together on this point. I mean, obviously we're talking now about, uh, you know, the, the, the lives and the safety of American service men and women in theater and, uh, you know, the bombs are, the bombs are flying. Um, I think, uh, I, I agree. Put down the Twitter, stop with the, uh, the, the, the heated rhetoric about, you know, uh, uh, you know, disproportionate responses. I, I understand uh, that, you, you know, I, I, I sort of get Trump at this sort of base level of, you know, this is how he operates. But um, there are people who uh, who have been doing this their entire lives that need to be listened to at this point because, uh, you know, there are a lot of lives at stake. Uh, so I, I hope that uh, that he he dials it back and that, um, you know, our 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 foreign, pol- our, our foreign policy establishment and our military establishment kind of gets control of this, so that it doesn't, um, so that it doesn't blow up and turn into a, a, you know, a live in theater shooting war that's going to have massive consequences and require a lot of uh, a lot of uh, human capital to execute. Okay. So I think this is where we're going to wrap it up. Uh, I ask our audience just to be aware that, uh, as always, we do we do record our show on Tuesday uh, late evening. Obviously, you'll know the time by when the news happened. Uh, and then you'll be getting it Thursday. So uh, I'd love to hear your responses on, on how things played out, how our conversation uh, maybe affected your perspective in light of the news, uh, and, and, and then taking into account the news. So hit us up, CentristPod, on the Twitter. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks.